Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's all about the traditions, beliefs and stories that have been passed through generations this week. Welcome back to Paranormal Activity with me, Yvette Fielding. And this week, we're looking at ancient myths to modern legends. It's all about folklore. Now, let's start off this week's show with fact or fiction. In the northwest of England, it's said that a creature named the Fomerton Beast dwells within old churchyards and is often seen at night. It looks like a black dog and protects the graveyards overnight. So is this fact or fiction? What do you think? Find out at the end of the show. Now, let's take it right back through the mists of time. The British Isles are inhabited by ancient Celtic tribes. These tribes believed that the land itself was alive, populated by spirits and enchanted beings. One of the most famous of these was the mischievous Puck. When Puck was at its most famous, fairies were seen as complex and problematic creatures in early modern England. The Catholic Church had even condemned them as demonic spirits as fairy beliefs had been associated with black magic and witchcraft. Playwrights of the time, including Shakespeare, had even made them the protagonists of their works, all, however, apart from one. This fairy, a spirit called Robin Goodfellow, went against the contemporary attacks on folklore and continued to cause mischief in the 16th and 17th century households. Goodfellow was a British spirit who personified the medieval character of the Puck. His unusual name reflected the popular reference to fairies as the good people, symbolising their love of flattery despite their mischievous nature. It says Goodfellow's homeland is named Oberon or Fairyland. This is a land free from vice and disorder, so he was believed to be fanatical about imposing control on the mortal world through promoting cleanliness and a strong work ethic. It was actually believed that fairies could tidy the home and could also force order onto maids and cleaners by pinching and nipping them when they were being idle. Goodfellow's good fortune and support came at a cost for those involved. As Reginald Scott commented, Goodfellow had a standing fee of a mess of white bread and milk, which he expected after supporting housewives with their chores. If his payment was forgotten, Goodfellow was believed to steal from the home that owed him, often stealing grain and milk from the dairy. 
This fear of fairies led to customs which were designed to stop these fairies' punishments from happening. People would often leave out pails of water for fairies to bathe in and a saucer of milk and bread to whet their appetite. In 1731, George Waldron contented a person would be thought imprudently profane to go to bed without having first set a tub or pail full of clean water in order for these guests to bathe themselves in. This was a dangerous time for belief in spirits, but it's clear that faith in these creatures remained significant in popular culture. Fairies could clean your home and keep your servants in check. However, they were also used to explain mysterious events and they were blamed for causing illnesses in children and would steal food and water. The range of acts that Robin Goodfellow was responsible for, as well as his ability to simultaneously help and harm, made him a problematic yet incredibly interesting creature in the early modern world. Early myths and legends like this laid the foundations for British folklore, blending with influences from the Romans, the Saxons, the Vikings and the Normans. British folklore is also entwined with the natural world. One example showing this is the Green Man, and this can be found in the architecture of ancient churches and cathedrals all across the country, and you've probably seen him yourself. He's depicted with leaves and branches sprouting from him and is a symbol of rebirth and fertility, embodying the cycle of life and death in the natural world, and it's one of the most ancient pagan symbols to be found in the Christian church. The name Green Man actually wasn't used until March 1939 in an article for the Folklore Journal. Before the article, they had been known as foliate heads and nobody paid them any real attention. Pagan traditions, particularly nature and tree worship, were still influential in the Middle Ages, so it's not surprising that the Green Man is often spotted in places where there are stretches of ancient woodland. Perhaps he could be an elemental spirit protecting the woodlands. And I have wood carvings of the Green Man in my wood. I've placed them in the nooks and crannies, in the oak trees, and every time I walk past him, I smile. And it, do you know what? It gives me a sense of peace and renewal and rebirth and that feeling of, oh, anything could happen. I'm also, dare I say it, I'm going to reveal this to you now. It's a bit of a secret. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm a tree hugger. I am a tree hugger. There you go. I'll wrap my arms around the oak tree, close my eyes and have a talk to the tree. And I'll really spill my guts and I'll tell of all my happiness, my woes, my fears, what I, what I hope to happen in the future and so on. And I have to say, I do feel quite marvellous after my tree hugging session. And if you haven't hugged a tree, then I absolutely insist that you give it a go. Obviously do it when no one can see you. That would be a bit embarrassing, wouldn't it? And if you haven't got a green man in your home or your garden, go and get one. They're absolutely lovely. Now, we can't talk about British myth and legend without talking about King Arthur. Historians can't actually confirm King Arthur's existence, but some speculate that he was a real warrior who led British armies against Saxon invaders in the 6th century, and I believe he was a real warrior as well. And it's said that he was a knight and a king who killed giants, witches and monsters. He, of course, is known for his Knights of the Round Table and for uniting the people of the land. He was a great warrior defending Britain from both human and apparently supernatural enemies and is also a magical figure of folklore, sometimes associated with the Welsh otherworld, Anun. He united Britain and drove off the invading Saxons and became a well-loved king. The name of his castle, Camelot, has come to signify a golden age. 
Arthur's greatest quest was for the mythical Holy Grail, which some are still trying to locate even today. And in case you didn't know what the Holy Grail was, uh, this was the cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper. Whilst Arthur is away from Britain, his nephew Mordred steps in and seizes power. Isn't that always the way? It does annoy me when they do that. And when Arthur returns, a terrible battle ensues. Most of the knights die and he's terribly, terribly wounded, is Arthur. He does have Excalibur, though, his sword, and he throws it back into the lake and boards a boat for the magical Isle of Avalon, where he hopes to be cured of his wounds so he can return to lead his people. And it's for this reason that Arthur is called the Once and Future Knight. It's a great, great story. If you've never read the story of Arthur, you must, because it's absolutely fantastic. And I'm a fan, if you can't be bothered to read, I'm a fan of Guy Ritchie, uh, a director. And one of his movies I absolutely adore is King Arthur and the Legend of the Sword. It's a brilliant movie and a modern take on the legend of Arthur. And I do believe that Arthur was a man, as I said at the beginning, and he lived and he fought many battles and a hero he was in those times. And over the years, over the hundreds of years, wonderful myths and songs and legends were born uh, from his courageousness. And I absolutely love this story. And if you haven't seen the movie yet, uh, it's called King Arthur and the Legend of the Sword, directed by Guy Ritchie. Watch it. It's absolutely fantastic. Oh, and I downloaded the music from the film too. Absolutely brilliant, brilliant stuff. This week's story comes from Vicky in South East London, who shares an experience she had with her late nan. Hi, Vet. Really enjoying your podcast, and I hope you're still wanting our paranormal stories. I'm running behind after I've only just discovered them, and I'm playing a bit of catch up. Um, my story is about my nan, who we lost in December 2020. When she was alive, she absolutely loved anything paranormal and often watched you on Most Haunted. We would sit for ages talking about wouldn't it be good to actually experience something ourselves to see if it was actually real. She was a bit of a sceptic, but she thoroughly enjoyed the shows and all the intrigue of it. She used to say to me that when she passes away eventually, if she can, she would try to prove to me that there was something after death. During the winter lockdown of 2020, she fell ill and sadly passed. But after that, in mid-January, it was my son's, my youngest son's birthday. We hadn't had her funeral yet and we were still talking about her a lot and uh, we was all locked down and we was at home together celebrating and my son actually referred back and said, do you remember Nan saying she'd prove if ghosts were real? And we were having a giggle and remembering how she made us both laugh and I said, shall we speak to her now? And he sort of nervously said, yeah. So we asked her if she was there and if she was, could she turn the lamp off if she could? Within seconds, the entire house fell into darkness Everything went off, mm. not just the lamp, the TV, everything. It was, it was, it did shock us. It was pretty scary. My son did get scared. I did reassure him and said, if that is Nan, that's a lovely thing. So please don't worry. Or it's just a power cut. Then I ran outside. I ran to see if the rest of the street was um, affected, but nobody. Every light was on in every other house. I knocked on the neighbour's door, checked with them. No, they was fine. So I came back. After five minutes, our power came back on. So make of that what you will. I like to think it was my nan. It was quite comforting, actually. Uh, and even now, to this day, the lamp that I asked her to switch on, and she didn't switch on, uh, sorry, switch off, and she didn't, is the la that lamp now comes on by itself. And I always say, oh, thanks, nan. <laughs> um, 
I don't know, was it her? Wasn't it her? I don't know. I like to think it was. And um, for me, it was real. So thanks. Bye. Hi, Vicky. Thank you so much for listening to the show and sharing your experiences. How absolutely fantastic that your nan turned all the power off. I definitely think it was your nan. And you must believe it too, that it was 100% her. And keep chatting to her. She obviously wants you to know that she's with you. That's the thing. All our loved ones that have passed on are with us. And if they can, they'll let you know that they are there. And I believe, Vicky, that your nan definitely let you know. Hello, my name is Mark Thompson, your guide aboard the Constellation Station podcast. Tune in every Monday for your weekly guide to all things going on in the skies above the UK that week. From meteor showers to comets and eclipses to supernova explosions, I will have it all. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from. But until then, let's hope for some clear skies. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now, joining us is a fantasy author of the new book, Rebel Folklore. This gathers 50 of the darkest folklore characters from around the world. She's also a ghost hunter and host of the fabulous Folklore podcast, and we're chatting all about UK folklore. 
I see Sedgwick. What a great name that is, eh? It's it, it's like she should be in some sort of drama in foreign, distant lands, almost Tolkien-esque, I think. Well, I see is a former ghost hunter, and she's the host of a fabulous folklore podcast uh, where she investigates the strange and bizarre world of European uh, folklore. Um, and her forthcoming book is entitled Rebel Folklore and is out on the 7th of September, and she joins me now. Now, welcome, Icy. What a great name. Yeah, if only it was like my actual name and not just one I picked for myself. <laughs> Please tell me your name is something like, I don't know, Maureen or something. No, it's a little bit more like contemporary than that. Are you going to tell me? No. Okay. <laughs> I like that. Keep it a mystery. I like Icy. I think that's fantastic. And so, what are the most common folklore creatures that we see? In the UK, because we talked about how at the beginning there you look at um, the world of European folklore, but you actually, you know, dedicate a lot of it, obviously, to the UK. So what's the most common stories that you've come across? I think there's quite a lot of stuff about fairies, and that's obviously right across the British Isles, and they sort of seem to pop up quite regularly. But the one that fascinates me the most is probably the black dog. Ah, yes. Because it's, it's got so many different names, and it's yes. like some of them are malevolent, some of them aren't, some of them are actually quite protective, and it's just like, where did that come from? So that's probably one of the more common ones. Have you actually got down to the bottom of where the black dog myth comes from, the harbinger of death, as he's described, isn't it, as one of them? Where does it come from? Can you go right back into history? How old is it, this legend? I think it's quite difficult to tell because so many places have their own versions of it. And then because a lot of them have only really sort of been collected in the 19th century, and you've always got to bear in mind the bias of whoever was doing the collecting. I mean, some of them obviously do go back into earlier centuries again and I can't help thinking that it's probably just something to do with the fact that dogs in general are quite helpful to humans. Yeah. So I kind of feel like the the benevolent side of them has probably been knocking around a bit longer. But I think the uh, the malevolent side probably sort of comes with a lot of the, the witch hunts and witch panic and so on and, and fears that it might actually be the devil in disguise. And I think, well... Wouldn't the devil appear as something more like a goat? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I'm mixing your metaphors there. <laughs> what about animals in general? Um, because they do appear, don't they, in a lot of folklore and, you know, witches have their familiars, whether it be a bird or a cat or, you know, as we all know, watching Harry Potter movies, they all have their little familiars, don't they? Ron had a, uh, had a rat, didn't he? <laughs> so... What about animals? Do you think that they can be sort of people can actually sort of use them as a way for good or bad? Do you think there's such a thing that real witchcraft can exist and that they actually do use animals? Well, I mean, I do know some people who are practicing witches who do have what they call familiars, but they're basically animals that they happen to live with. So there's a lot of dogs and cats in that. And I think in a lot of cases, one of the things that they really do help with is providing sort of a, is a sense of a comfort and security and, and what have yeah. you. And I sort of feel like when you look back at a lot of the really sort of classic, as it were, witchcraft accounts, and some of the familiars people had are weird. I mean, greyhounds in the northeast are really popular, and it's like, oh, wow, how to perpetuate a stereotype. <laughs> and, um, and then you have, like, some woman apparently had two miniature ponies that should, like, a daughter claimed that she kept in a pot by her bed, and it's just like that. Some of the, the stories kind of sound like the... The sort of the outpourings of a fevered imagination. But I think you don't know how much of it somebody's just kind of gone, oh, that person has a pet and I want to accuse them of something. And you think, yeah, but 
a lot of pets are particularly cats in a rural area they've got a really practical function which creatures have you been told about you've gone to i don't know maybe you've you've heard about it and you've gone to talk to somebody and you're looking at them and you're going in your head nope i'm not buying this one bit what have you got a funny story like that where you've just gone this this is just too ridiculous thankfully i haven't luckily because obviously the people that i know they've all got pets that i'm like yes you have a cat your cat's awesome and i think i've heard i have heard of some people working with snakes right. which i think is a, is a really interesting thing because obviously snakes in in western europe in particular obviously have a really bad reputation but in other cultures they're actually really helpful again because they keep down vermin and so on so i sort of feel like a lot of the time the animals that end up as familiars are kind of just animals that have ended up with really bad pr <laughs> and not necessarily for their own reason, but just because they've been linked with something that they've actually got nothing to do with. You look back through history, look at the Egyptians. I mean, they sort of honoured the cat, didn't they? Well, yeah. And you th- if you think about it, if you're a society where most of your diet is a grain-based diet to do with things like bread and what have you, and you've got a lot of rodents, well, cats and snakes are both phenomenal at keeping those mm. rodents down. So I think that it is that thing where certain animals kind of have a really strong use. And it's weird, actually, going back to when you were asking about creatures at the beginning, about like popular folk tales. There's a really bizarre trend in some British folklore for fairies to actually take the form of cats and then just live with human families. And I've no idea why they do that. Wow. Going back to the right at the beginning, you talk about fairies. You said that that's the most common thing that a lot of people report. And when you hear that, I mean, here's me. I talk to the dead, for goodness sake. And I'm up for anything. I, you know, but I want to see something. I want to experience it for myself before I can believe in it. So for me, when I hear about fairies, or in fact, I think some lady I talked to said she'd seen a gnome. And you see, your instant reaction is to actually go, you are. Yeah, are you kidding me? Because <laughs> that's a natural human reaction because it seems so far-fetched. But the audacity of me going, you are, when I'm sitting here going, is there anybody there? Please come out and talk to me, to a dead person. It's just as crazy in a way. So for me, I've got to be very open-minded about everything. But how does that affect you when you're talking to people that say, actually, no, I've seen a fairy. No, I've seen a gnome. No, I've seen this. No, I've seen a unicorn. How do you deal with that in your mind unless you've seen these things? It depends what it is that they say that the seen and I think sometimes you can then you sort of think like what would Kieran say and then you kind of go down that like was it a trick of the light had this person maybe been overtired etc etc but then I think when people do say that they've encountered fairies or whatever I sort of think well because there's so much crossover between quite a lot of different types of fairies but then also different types of ghosts because when you look at brownies for example they're not that far off poltergeist Mm. And then you have people who have these experiences where they feel like they've been taken to fairyland or the other world or whatever you want to call it. They're not that far off alien encounters. So you kind of think, are we just using different words for the same thing? Mm, mm. And there's always a part of me that is like, it's possible that somebody's been mistaken, but then at the same time, what if they're not? (laughs) And that's a bit that I'm interested in, that maybe it is actually real. What about, because you you are a ghost hunter and you've been on a fair few ghost hunts. I get asked this question all the time, so I'm going to ask you, haha, what's your favourite location (laughs) that you've been to? It's funny because I've been to somewhere you think, oh, that should be a really obvious one, like the Castle Keeper Newcastle. So you would think like, oh, that's going to be like top of the mm. top of the pile. But I would actually say that I've probably had more more strange things happen when I've actually not been on a specific ghost hunt. If that oh, makes sense, it's almost yeah. like stuff yeah. happens when you're not looking for it. Yeah, and 
John Knox House in Edinburgh was really good for that. In fact, the, that that had a weirder atmosphere than I feel like the faults did. Hmm. Oh, the Paris catacombs. They were weird. Now I'm jealous. I am seriously <laughs> jealous. Do you know, it's the one place I've always wanted to go. Tell me about it. That's fascinating. What was it like? It's weird because I had no idea because I didn't read up on it. I thought it was just the bit with the skeletons. And then I walked down and I'm like, wow, so I'm literally just walking around a quarry because you are just walking around these former limestone quarries at first. And then you reach the edge of the ossuary and then you're like, oh, okay, this is this is where it really sort of kicks in. And you do feel really weird. Like I was down there, not by myself in the sense that there was obviously other tourists, but I wasn't down there with anyone I knew. And there was a girl in front of me who was also on her own and quite clearly felt a bit freaked out by it all. So we kind of had this weird thing of keeping each other in like <laughs> I, I envision so we could sort yeah. of see what was happening. But you don't know how much of it is psychosomatic because you were in an underground space filled with bones, but you do have a sort of like a sense of sadness in that mm. section that isn't really present in the quarries because the quarries are just like tunnels that have been hewn out mm-hmm. of the rock. And it didn't help that I went past where there should have been like a doorway off to another tunnel because they're an absolute labyrinth down there. And there was a guy who must have just been like a, a guard or something was like sitting on a chair, but like behind this stack of bones and you just kind of shouted, bonjour, as I went past and I'm like, what? What was that? And then I realised it was, it was just this person. But um, it was it was very, very odd. And I think you do sort of realise when you walk around there quite the quantity of people that were buried in these places, which necessitated the establishment of things like Père Lachaise. But you do just feel like if there is anybody attached to these skeletons, please feel free to move on, unless you really enjoy frightening tourists, in which case, crack on. <laughs> so it, it is a really, really fascinating place to go. Always wanted to go there. So tell us about your book that's coming out on the 7th of September. It's called Rebel Folklore. So what will readers expect to see in this book? It's got 50 figures and it's not all European and North American because I noticed a couple of people in the in comments online have sort of said they're really pleased to see that it's not just simply focusing on North America and Europe. So it's every continent except Antarctica for obvious reasons. And they're the figures of folklore who aren't entirely good and aren't entirely bad. And they're just kind of ambiguous. And in some cases you can look at some of them and think, oh, they don't sound particularly pleasant, but they're only unpleasant if people cross them in some way. So mm. there's those kind of characters. We've obviously got people like Robin Hood in there because you can't do a book about folklore rebels and not include Robin Hood. Like he's kind of the, <laughs> the granddaddy of them all. But then there's other figures like Psycho Pomps in there who are my personal favourite. And that fact that, you know, in some ways, like, if you think of even just the Grim Reaper as a concept, you think, oh, that must be a really awful job. But you're like, but it's also a really necessary one. So the characters in their case are actually quite neutral, but they seem scary, but they're literally just doing their job. Does that form part of the River of Sticks and all of that? Does that come into it as yes. well? Yeah, Caron will be a really good example. Yeah, and it, I always feel like the point that you cross over must be really, really like terrifying and feel a bit like the first day at school where you don't know anyone. And the idea that there's someone <laughs> to pop up and be like, hello, this is where you need to go. I find that really comforting. So I think that's why I really like the idea of them. How do they go again, Icy? What do they say? I just feel like they go, hello, this is where you need to go. And it's just... No, yeah. it's the way you said it. I wanted you to go, hello. <laughs> just Um, popping up from behind a rock hello yeah absolutely well I hope we don't really go to the river of sticks and and cross over on a boat and you'd met there with a 
hooded, cloaked figure. And, you know, I see it a little bit more uh, sort of brighter than that. But yeah, no, all of that is absolutely fascinating. And um, what else? What's your favourite bit of the book? Oh, that's really hard. I think one of the things I find really interesting is the number of them that are forest protectors. So it's like they can be quite aggressive towards humans, but it's the ones who like come in and take more resources than they should. And I sort of feel like when you look at quite a lot of the discussion in the news about sort of environmental protections being stripped away, and then you look at the really good news coming out of places like Ecuador and Brazil, where they're sort of rolling back a lot of this kind of pillaging of the environment. And I kind of go like, yeah, actually those stories, even though some of them are really, really old, you feel like they continue to resonate even now. And I think that's the thing with a lot of the figures, to be honest, like there's a certain universality to a lot of the stories where some of them, even in their own context, they continue to be important now. And I think that's one of the, the beauties of folklore, the fact that it's not just this ancient thing about sort of centuries ago, it's, it's kind of continuing to evolve even now. When you've been writing about the folklore and you've been going through all these different characters and going through history, what is, I know we've just talked about this because mine has to be the boggart. Not only do I like the mm-hmm. word, but I like that sort of the whole mystery of it and the naughtiness of it. <clears throat> is there something similar to you that you just say, oh, they're just so naughty and cheeky, but I really like them? Is there anything like that for you? Yeah, we've actually got one in the northeast called Silky, and she oh, yes. appears in loads of different, she's got three different stories traditionally. And it's like, is she a brownie? Is she just a malicious fairy? Is she a, a, an actual spirit? Is she a ghost? Is she a poltergeist? Is she all of them rolled into one? And I quite like the fact that you can't ever pin Silky down and yeah. say what she is or isn't. She sort of does her own thing, and I really appreciate that kind of like independence <laughs> and defying categorization. I really like that. That is wonderful. I, I actually can't wait to get your book, Rebel Folklore, out on the 7th of September. And also, you do a podcast, Fabulous Folklore Podcast, and that's where everybody can find you. Good luck with the book. I'm sure you don't need any luck whatsoever. And I'm sure we'll speak to you again in the future. It's been absolutely lovely talking to you, Icy. And what a great name. Thank you. It's been brilliant talking to you as well. Now let's get the answer to this week's fact or fiction. And to remind you, here was the question. In the northwest of England, it's said that a creature named the Fomerton Beast dwells within old churchyards and is often seen at night. And it looks like a black dog and protects the graveyards. So what do you think? Is it fact or fiction? It's fiction. (laughs) I completely made that one up this week. Fooled you. Right, get in touch. Well, some of you anyway. Get in touch with us and share your stories. Here's the address. It's contact at paranormalpod.co.uk. We are on WhatsApp. Give me a tinkle. Chat to me like Vicky did. Here's the number 075-999-27537. All our photographs and our videos, uh, things that you send in to us, uh, we will share with you on Instagram. And here's our handle at Paranormal Activity Pod. Have a look at that Instagram page. It's a really good one. Stay up to date with the newest episodes by giving us a follow. And we'll be back again same time next week. But if you can't wait until then, visit www.paranormalpod.co.uk where you can find options to get episodes a day early. Have a great week, stay safe and remember things aren't always as they seem. <laughs>